It's Pride Month, and a lot of organizations around the world are focusing on inclusivity and support for the LGBTQ2S plus community. In these discussions, however, one significant group sometimes slips through the cracks. Gender diverse people, the trans, non-binary, intersex, and so on. People who need that visibility and support now more than ever. Anti-trans legislation is being put forward in countries around the world, and gender diverse people are increasingly the targets of violent crime and hate crimes. This is the first of a two-part series on gender diversity. What does it entail? How do we support it? And what needs to be done to curb the extremism we're seeing on the issue? My guests today are experts in gender diversity, social justice, and criminal justice, and I'm excited to speak with them both. My name is Eric Bowman. I'm the communications person at the Canadian Psychological Association, and this is Mindful. My name is Ada Sinapore. I'm a professor at McGill, and I'm the current president of the Canadian Psychological Association. My name is Kira Stockdale. I am the current chair of the criminal justice section, a member of the Human Rights and Social Justice Committee, specifically the work group on societal and sexual violence. And my background is clinical and forensic psychology. And so let's uh, let's start there, right? Uh, societal violence. What does that mean in this circumstance? How do how do we define societal violence against a marginalized group? I think when when we put those working groups together, the reason that because I chair the Human Rights and Social Justice Committee, the reason we chose societal violence as well as sexual violence is because societal violence includes all kinds of activities that people are confronted with. For example, when they paint, you know, swastikas on a on a door. No person may be hurt by that, but it's still a form of violence when somebody has to read it, or if there's homophobic epitaphs painted places. So societal violence are all those things that result in causing harm to a person, be it through observing it, reading it, or physically or otherwise experiencing it. So it, ca- it causes trauma or re-traumatizes. So that's why we chose that terminology. So, and we've seen a rise in both societal violence and in hate crime, physical attack violence over the last few years, specifically targeting trans and gender diverse people. I'm wondering if you guys have a notion as to why that's happening. Kira, as the criminal justice expert here, do you have a sense as to why that increase has taken place over and how long has it been over the last 10 years, five years, two years? I mean, obviously it's been around forever, but. Oh, that's a really excellent question, Eric, because I think from my perspective, I would like to see much better data uh, on this issue. I can certainly say that you know, um, the working group that we have for societal and sexual violence, we've done some research and we can see that, for instance, there's a trans murder monitoring report. And so they have collected data, I believe, since 2008. And they've identified that, you know, most recently, it's been the most violent year recorded for murder of trans individuals. And so we certainly see the numbers increasing and that's only the tip of the iceberg. We know that there's higher rates of violence um, in certain groups, minority groups in particular. And so the question as to why this is, I think is very complex. I've heard people say, you know, it's just because we started recording 
But in my mind, it's much bigger than that. We're started recording, but many incidents of, of violence go unreported. Many people don't feel comfortable reporting to police and police are still struggling, I think, with how to best investigate hate, these hate crimes. So you may think about the uncertainty we face presently. You know, there's political violence. There has been a, a you know, global pandemic. So there's also this culture of fear and misinformation um, in social media and some politically divisive um, policies and legislation proposed um, in certain you know, regions of the world. So I'm sure there are experts which, with much more rounded out thoughts than I, but I think it's, it's very complicated. And I think the most important message here is how do we prevent this from occurring? And when you mentioned the police and that they have a hard time investigating these hate crimes in the way that they should be able to do so, is that strictly an education issue? Do they just need to be more well-informed about uh, gender diversity and the issues that come along with it? Or is there something else happening there? Well, I, I think from my perspective, and, and I know I have much learning to do, but you know, society may think from a cis normative perspective, like we are thinking about society in binary terms, right? So when we're talking about violence towards people who are gender diverse, gender minorities or trans, I mean, I'm not even sure people necessarily have a full understanding of how their biases may be operating when investigating these offenses. But also people, I think rightfully so, are very reluctant then to come forward because they've been oppressed, mistreated, and sometimes victimized, of course, by the system. We have to remember that for a very, very long period of time, um, it was illegal to be a member of any of the 2S LGBTIQA plus groups, right? In fact, that acronym is, is very new, but the laws, it's less than 50 years that the laws begin to change that sexual minorities and gender minorities are allowed to legally exist. And so there is a fear within queer communities of even reporting anything to the police because, because there is a fear of being mistreated by the police. So it's really hard to know what the numbers are in terms of hate crimes if you look at reports. But if you look at research that's outside of reporting, we're seeing the, the numbers are quite high and we're seeing significant increases in hate crimes across many groups. We're seeing increases among, about sexual violence. We're seeing increases in murders. Um, and over the pandemic, that has been well documented. Um, and I think as soon as you're seeing those increases, people within queer communities and um, trans and gender diverse people become even more cautious because the world gets even scarier. Right. And I imagine that the world is awfully scary right now. And Kira, you mentioned, you know, social media, a lot of the disinformation that's out there. Uh, but it's more, I think it's even more than just disinformation in the sense that it is sort of weaponized division, right? And people do this on purpose. They find a, a cause that they think can sow division that can, you know, get the most clicks and the most backlash and all this kind of thing. And then they, uh, and so a lot of policy ends up being driven by this sort of internet echo chamber 
And one of the things that I wanted to talk to you guys about was this notion that somehow there are children who are too young to learn about gender diversity, that are they aren't equipped to learn it yet, or that if they do learn it, it's going to ruin the rest of their lives because somehow it's going to convert them. I, I like, I'm not, I'm still not hundred percent clear on what the argument actually is, but this has become a pretty big thing. And it's, it's coming to Canada as well. A lot of people starting to argue for, you know, let's not tell any kids anything until they're, you know, I don't know, old enough to learn it. So 35 or 40 or whenever they, you know, leave home, I, I don't know what the correct age is. And Ada, I'm wondering if you can just, Talk to me a little bit about that. Like, is is there any validity to there being an age limit uh, by which you can start to talk to kids about this? So it's an interesting question. And I, I think we can talk to kids about this at a young age. I actually think we should start talking to kids, children about this in kindergarten. Because children know, children's identity development starts very young. And so they know if they're experiencing themselves as different at a very young age, and they know if they're experiencing themselves as different than their peers as a very young age. And so if they're, they're exploring, they start exploring gender and gender identity as early as three and five years old. So as they grow and they learn and they learn about themselves, they are exploring their gender. We're all exploring our gender across our lifespan. The other piece of this discussion is Gender diverse people live in the world. Right. So, and so when children have a gender diverse person in their family, like say a parent, an uncle, a friend of the family, whoever that person is in their family, they know at a very young age about that person. And that person to them say it's a parent, is a person they love just as a child with a heterosexual parent who is cisgendered is going to love their parent. Mm -hmm. And they're going to go to school at age five, having this parent who may be trans or or gender non-binary or gender diverse in some way. And they're going to want to see their parent as part of the person, the world, Versus this special thing that we can't talk about because somehow there's something wrong with my parent. And I'm just, and for kids who will eventually grow up to discover that, oh, you know what, I am non binary. I am, uh, you know, I actually think I I am a woman. I want to change gender. I'm trans, whatever. It strikes me that if they've been exposed to it from a very young age, it's less of a leap for them to to make that decision, to make that statement later on in their lives where they say, actually, this is what I am. Uh, Whereas if it's been if they have no exposure to it and no experience with it and they don't know that it exists, they might just feel like there's something crazy wrong with me that I don't. I, right, that I, I feel like that's one of the main reasons that we need to tell kids from a very young age. Well, yeah. So we want children to feel like who they are is loved and appreciated and valued. And children know when they are appreciated, loved and valued for what for whatever their identities or their experiences are. 
And if a child is, is kind of trying to figure out their gender identity or is really clear that their gender isn't um, aligned with their assigned sex, if we keep all these things like as hidden secret taboo, that's going to negatively affect their, their self-esteem, their sense of agency, their, their, their levels of confidence. So they're going to start questioning it. And so, and that, that's the experience of queer people from, very, from a, a, a variety of, of identities. If, they're on a, if they don't see themselves mirrored or talked about or understood in picture books, um, in conversations, it's very hard for, for, for them to feel like they can fit in, to, they're, they're a part of something. And that's, that's a really difficult thing for, for a child to, to have to negotiate. I don't think it's unrelated to the line of questioning that you just raised, Eric. This early education is preventative right. for hate and harm. So when I think about you know, criminal justice, violence, bullying, having people exposed to these conversations feel accepted, supported, and, and a w- greater awareness, I think, is, violence, is part of violence prevention. Well, if you think about it, my generation, right, somebody of my generation, we didn't have any role models or um, people to look to to try to figure out our gender or our sexual orientation. So when I talk to my peers who came out a long time ago, like myself, it was very hard to figure out who we were. And it was very scary to talk or tell anybody or even to ask those questions about why am I feeling this way? Why do I, why am I attracted to who I'm attracted to? And that's a scary thing. And so it's in the, if you, if you think about it from a perspective of prevention, yes, but also from a perspective of the fact that if you normalize this as just a part of the gender spectrum of what we live in the world, then somebody who's, having those questions about themselves has given a clear message that they can talk about it right. and that they can explore it and that there's nothing wrong with them. Because if we look over the years, we can see the negative impact on many generations of queer people who weren't able to talk about this or be out about this. Right. And uh, just so you know, when you say my generation, uh, this is an audio podcast, so no one can see right. guess from looking at you what your generation is. So you might have to give us like a hint. What what was the big song that you loved when you were a kid? <laughs> I, I can just say that I don't, um, the big song I loved when I was a yeah. kid. What was your favorite song when you were 13 years old? That's how we'll know what your generation is. I'll just say this. I came out in 1977. I wanted to talk to a little bit about education a little further on. And Ada, you were telling me the last time we spoke about professors who still don't really understand what, you know, gender diversity actually is, who are still teaching a gender binary in their, in their courses. And I'm wondering what we can do to move that forward, right? To get the people who should be the most knowledgeable about this as knowledgeable as they should be? It's a good question. I mean, I think it's interesting because if you look at the data 
on um, healthcare service providers, which includes also uh, mental health care service providers. 60% say they have no training in cultural competence of working with trans people or, and 50% say they have no competence in working with, no training in cultural competence to work with gay, lesbian, bisexual, and queer people. That's a, that's a pretty high statistic, which says to me that not only are we training, not training people to work with these populations, people aren't seeking out continuing education to work with these populations. And I talk to people a lot about this and people will say things like, well, I'm just beginning to learn. I'm just beginning to understand. So I think one of the things that we have to think about is that I don't have a choice but to talk about these things. Right. But so I don't have the privilege not to talk about them. And I think where the challenge lies is getting people to recognize that not talking about topics like gender diversity, trans, is about their privilege and not about good education. And so right. people have to be willing to really engage and learn and read and, um, and be, look at how they're doing their research and look at the methodologies they're using versus this becoming an identity checkbox and then people running a, you know, just saying, okay, this is the differences between this group and this group. That's not helping our students really understand what the complexity is of gender diversity and the contexts in which different people, different people have to manage their gender in different ways. And I think that's about people acknowledging that they have to, they have to do a lot of the work. It's like, I can't go in and teach you how to work with a gender diverse person. You have to dig deep and to say, how come you haven't engaged with this scholarship, this knowledge? this community in the past. Before we go, I'm going to maybe ask you for a short list of reading materials uh, that we can you know, put in the notes <laughs> for this show so that people can start to do some of that uh, work on their own. Uh, now, I know you're both working on a policy statement for Canadian psychology on this subject. Is that the kind of thing that it's going to tackle? Is that the kind of thing that we're going to be uh, talking about when the policy statement is released? So I think <laughs> that... Part of the reason to have the policy statement is to have recommendations that will come from that statement that will be both for the discipline as well as for other healthcare service providers as, or, and government agencies. So when, when we have a policy statement, the recommendations have to address the systemic discrimination that trans and gender diverse people experience. And so my hope is that there'll be recommendations that lead to changes in legislation. There'll be recommendations that lead to more gender affirming and inclusive schools, and that there'll be recommendations that lead to the improvement of mental health care for gender diverse and trans people. So that's what my hope is will come from that policy statement. I hope you're right. And when when you're talking about the systemic discrimination, right, all the different parts of the system, a lot of them being government. And Kira, this is one of the things I want to talk to you about the most, just because I feel like it's probably a microcosm of a larger system. 
uh, where you know trans non-binary gender diverse people would be left out would be discriminated against there's a high probability of that and that's in the prison system and i'm thinking right because so many times the debate devolves into something about bathrooms right like somebody uses the wrong bathroom and the world's going to come to an end or whatever right there there's a weird focus on bathrooms but i think as a larger systemic thing i'm wondering somebody who's gender diverse who is arrested for a crime has to be incarcerated how does the carceral system deal with that are we doing what we should be doing in that circumstance these are great questions and complex questions and i i think back to you know a, a very landmark case in 1989, and it was a woman by the name of Cynthia Kavanaugh, and she was incarcerated federally for a crime she had committed. And as a trans individual at that time, she was incarcerated in a male uh, institution. Hormone therapy that she was taking was discontinued, and requests to be placed in you know a, a more appropriate institutional setting um, were of course denied. So she had advanced human rights complaints, and it was decided that, yes, people should be placed in, in custody placements um, in line with their gender identity, not biological sex assigned at birth, and that the right to gender-affirming care uh, should be provided. So there have been important steps and changes made, and at the same time, so much work needs to be done. We know that gender-diverse individuals, uh, trans individuals, minorities are victimized in prisons, violence, sexual violence. I just heard the Office of the Correctional Investigator speak and they were identifying that there is no strategy to keep individuals safe from sexual violence in prison, period. Never mind our most marginalized, vulnerable groups, which include gender diverse um, persons. So I think that there's, there's lots of work that still needs to be done. And I think people are um, building on Ada's point fearful I think current statistics say maybe 93 people currently in federal custody have a flag on their file as having a gender concern, I think their language was. And so I'm sure people are not feeling open to, to talk about this in custody. We don't have good provincial data, right? Every province can have their own policies and procedures and people on remand have even less access to programs, uh, specialized care um, and those sorts of things. So. Um, I think that this is an important area, um, and I appreciate your question, Eric, because I think society, the quote is, is judged on how it it's treats its most um, vulnerable and marginalized persons. And of course, many of these are in our prison system. Right. I think well, it was Dostoyevsky, right, who said uh, to judge a society how it based on how it treats its prisoners specifically. Yeah, well, and there's also other concerns, right? Like the system is very set up in the gender binary. So whether you're placed in a certain institution, what tools are used to assess your safety or your risk, say, of violence towards other people? All of these are set up in this system where I'm not sure there's a good understanding of how we um, you know, provide gender-affirming care, protect individuals from harm, but also provide access to important services and programs that people need. I can think of a case where um, an individual was provided with a gender navigator upon release from the institution because they had identified that they were gender diverse and maybe needing assistance in this regard, but they never consented to the gender navigator. So when they got out, not wishing to proceed with this service that was thrust upon them, they lost access to all the other services they need. 
people in the institution thought, yep, you have access to this resource and they were well-meaning. You can get access to medical care, housing and so forth. When this person decided that they did not want to proceed, that wasn't for them. They had none of these other services to support them in reintegrating back to the community. So we need to do better. Right. And I think, I mean, so many systems that we deal in every day are set up as a binary gender system. I think a lot of people do want to do something about that, right? They want to make it a more inclusive space. They want to support gender diverse people, trans people. But then, like you said, even the most well-meaning outreach efforts can be ham-fisted and end up doing more harm than good in, in a lot of ways. So I'm wondering if you guys have ideas, right? Like we run a company, we're trying to be more inclusive, but really, and I think we talk about this with racial makeup of companies and uh, racial equality as well, where it's not enough to just hire people who are gender diverse, just hire people who are, you know, black or Hispanic or what have you. You have to create a welcoming environment where that person actually feels good being at work, where they are pleased to be in your office. So I'm wondering if you guys have a few ideas about how you can go about doing that without, you know, just like Ada said earlier, checking off the boxes. I think to do that, what organizations have to begin to do and will be willing to do is to really look at and analyze how what's already within the organization and how it already operates supports discrimination. So whatever we see in society, whatever the sociocultural things that are happening in society are going to be happening in our organizations. So if there's polarization in society, there's going to be polarization in our organizations. If there's gender phobia, homophobia, transphobia in society, it's going to be in our organizations. Right. right? And the first thing they have to do is recognize that these things are already happening in their organizations. Because if you bring somebody in without attending to the systemic structures in your organization that's discriminatory, you're not going to be able to protect that person from the discrimination. Right. So organizations need to take stock of what's already happening. The other thing they need to take stock of is that there are probably people in their organization who are uh, gender diverse or trans or a sexual minority that they've been ignoring or not paying attention to or who's been mistreated or who just kind of stays, may not feel like they fit in. And a lot of organizations don't look to the people they already have in their organization around what they need to do already for the people within their organization. And so the thing is, we're just gonna hire people to increase representation Yes, representation is very, very important, but you have to put a system and structure in place to address it, and you have to support the people who are already in your system, who are already living from that identity or social location. And I think that's why the policy statement um, that's proposed on gender diversity and human rights is so important, because it starts by acknowledging the harms that we have perpetrated. So there's organizations, there's also discipline. So the discipline of society, um, psychology rather, has been, you know, perpetrating these harms towards um, gender diverse persons. And so by examining that, examining how the discipline trains, teaches, operates, and what we ourselves bring to this oppressive 
system, I think it is critical. I mean, it, it can't end there to your point, Ada, hopefully there's there's recommendations and changes in, in legislation and policy that come from this, but I really feel that this statement um, confirms CPA's commitment to the protection and promotion of, of human rights for gender diverse people. And, it, and this is a, a big statement to start with, for sure. The historic baggage of the profession of psychology. I'm hoping that you can just go in, maybe tell us a little bit more. I, historically, a lot of harms have been done to gender diverse and trans people by the, the profession. What are some of those and how are we gonna redress them now? In the early, late seventies that they changed homosexuality into um, being somebody who is distressed by their sexual orientation. And that stayed on the books until in some shape, way or form until 2013. Right. So somebody who is gender diverse by definition is gonna have mental illness because if you are trying to explore or understand your gender diversity or your sexual orientation, it's going to cause, it's not going to be an easy thing to do. And so if you're living in a society that is oppressive to gender diverse trans queer people, those people know, experience that. So for psychology, so psychology has historically kind of pathologized our identities versus understanding our challenges come from living in contexts where we have been fundamentally mistreated. Now, I'm very proud to say that the Canadian Psychological Association had a major policy statement about conversion therapy, which was cited more, more than any other statement, and conversion therapy, reparative therapy, is now criminalized in part due to that policy statement. And the Canadian Psychological Association also had a policy statement related to um, same-sex marriage. And that policy statement was cited, highly cited in terms of the legislation that brought about marriage equity um, for people in Canada. So I feel like, yes, psychology has done some real harm. As somebody who's lived through over a 40-year history of this, mm -hmm. I have seen it. I have watched it. I have survived it. But... I think this gender policy statement can will hopefully do a whole lot of good. One thing I did want to end with, I was talking to my daughter yesterday about pride and the notion that you can be proud to be gay, even though you were born that way, it's not something you accomplished. It's the journey. It's the difficulty of figuring out that you're gender diverse, that you are queer, that you, you know, and then coming out with that, that is the pride portion of it, that you've made it through all of that. Uh, and like you said, over 40 years that you made it through that, you survived it. So uh, I think that's why the use of the word pride makes uh, a lot of sense. And I think it was a smart thing for her to say. Be sure to tune in next week when that very smart kid of mine will be one of our podcast guests, along with transgender psychologist and activist, Dr. Jesse Boss, in the second part of this two-episode arc. Tuning in to Mindful, which is produced, written, edited, published, and recorded by me, Eric Bowman. Our theme music is Avenues by David Taylor. See you next week.